Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's very well-caffeinated panel, returning to the roundup, is the ever-insightful Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran, political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome back, Lucy. Good morning. Thanks, Ron. You just knew somehow that I've already had six cups of coffee. (laughs) I was projecting. And returning to the show, fresh off the set of Morning Joe on MSNBC, Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He is an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection, and he is the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, which we have spoken to about on this podcast. Mark, welcome back, and good morning. Thank you so much. Good morning, and you pronounced my last name correctly, so that's a good omen for the show. I mean, I've had a little bit of practice. Uh, How is our kombucha compared to the Morning Joe folks? Well, at Morning Joe, I actually had a lot of coffee. I was up early, but the, the kombucha, my wife is, will be listening. And so, you know, she kind of got me into this and it's it's healthy. It's fantastic. I love it. So I'm one of those, I'm, you know, at 52 years old, I can still learn new things and I've fallen in love with kombucha. Go figure. Got to get it. you into matcha next. Oh, there you go. I will, I will green pill you on, on matcha, <laughs> as they say. On this week's roundup, the nearly eight hour gap in White House phone logs during the January 6th attack. An update on Putin's war and the Russian propagandist calling for Russians to help their partner, Donald Trump. How the left's climate playbook needs to change. And then when we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about the Justice Department's investigation into Hunter Biden and the stories that we now know to be true about data on his laptop. Politicology Plus is a private, ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and discussions and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you are listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show there and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can create an account over at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On Tuesday, CBS News correspondent Robert Costa and Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward reported that internal White House records from January 6th, 2021, uh, that were turned over to the House Select Committee, uh, show a seven-hour, 37-minute gap in President Trump's phone logs. And that includes the period when the Capitol building was under violent attack. There were no records of calls placed to or by Trump between 11.17 a.m. to 6.54 p.m. That is a total of 457 minutes. The logs did document eight conversations that Trump had that morning and 11 that evening, but they conflicted with the reporting of Trump's phone calls with allies during the attack. On Wednesday, The Guardian reported that Trump used a White House phone to place at least one call during that window. The call should have been recorded in the logs, but it was not. We know that Trump had called Republican Senator Mike Lee. Uh, The Guardian reported that Trump placed that call himself and should have been recorded in the call log that was turned over to the archives and the select committee. And that call had previously been reported. Uh, Trump was trying to call Tommy Tuberville, but called Lee instead. And after Lee gave Tuberville the phone, uh, he informed him that Pence had been removed from the Senate chamber because of the attack. So there appears to be... uh, an extremely serious violation, perhaps the most serious violation of the Presidential Records Act by the Trump White House concerning the January 6th attack. Uh, How are you both thinking about this gap in the phone logs? Mark, do you want to lead off? Sure. And so, you know, I I look at everything from a bit of a different perspective. I look at it from what the world Mm -hmm. or how the world is watching. And I think, you know, as we continue to see, um, you know, the, the 6th January investigation play out, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, overseas as CIA officer, but it really is a is a not an official ambassador, but as an ambassador for the American people and the American system of government. And I spent a lot of time doing a lot of preaching that you know we were uh, a country with the rule of law. And so when you see stories like this um, that certainly have to be investigated, um, you know, I, I I feel almost a sense of hypocrisy mm. in so much of what I've done overseas um, because we can't get our house in order, uh, you know, correct. And so I think it's really important, you know, obviously for domestic uh, uh, considerations to, you know, for the investigation um, of this call log issue to move forward. But, you know, the world is watching and, and you know, we don't look that good. And so, you know, we got to get this right because one of the things that we do as American officials overseas is we do talk about how, you know, America is in some sense, you know, still a bright shining city on a hill. Um, you know, American exceptionalism is something that you know, it gets a bad name every once in a while, but it's something that a lot of us still believe in, particularly when I served in the Middle East and the third world. So I think this really has to be followed through really for our reputation uh, globally. Yeah. You know, American exceptionalism is something I talked with Ann Applebaum about uh, a year and a half ago now. And uh, I agree with that sentiment, but the underbelly is that it leads people to believe that it can't happen here, right? We get this false sense of security that democracy is, you know, a given here and that the rule of law is a given and that the president will follow the law. Um, Lucy, okay, so Trump's oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, uh, this disregard for preserving presidential records, um, you know, speak to his willingness to fulfill his oath, which no one listening to this podcast will be surprised that, you know, that is not on his mind. But what should we think about that? Um, how do you think about that? And 
you know, we should probably we should probably disclaimer this segment as obviously not the thing that is uh, sort of top of mind for most voters during the midterms, but it has enormous consequences. Um, you know, when this when this does finally come to a head, and it looks like this is getting much much closer. So, anyway, how how are you thinking about the uh, the this incident as it relates to Trump's oath of office? Well, I mean, as it relates to Trump's oath of office, it it just sort of tells us what we already know, I think. I mean, we already know that he has problems with phone calls generally, <laughs> and uh, it's really unsurprising. It is, it's more like a another data point in our perception of the man, but we already knew that he was doesn't take his oath of office seriously at all um, through many, many uh, activities he undertook in his horrifying presidency, including on January 6th. What I try to think about is what will the repercussions of this be? And I think the answer is zero. And the reason is that people who think Trump is an abominable guy, first of all, things like records preservation is kind of inside baseball, right? I mean, I think, yes, Americans are aware of things like Nixon and Watergate and, you know, Richard Nixon, where art thou kind of thing makes you think in this episode. But in general, this is pretty arcane in some ways for a lot of people. This idea, we, I think for all the schoolhouse rock stuff mm-hmm. we do for kids, we don't really train up Americans in the idea of how much they should care about transparency and public records and preservation of records, which which to me actually is a piece of what we should hope for when we think of American exceptionalism, right? It's a set of standards that we that we hold our public officials, both elected and bureaucratic, to. And, and that's a really good thing. And that is a, a a culture and a set of mores, and not even actually just a set of mores. I mean, it's it's it is in our laws <laughs> that Donald Trump had no interest in upholding. And and we know that in many, many areas, his behavior on Twitter, blocking people phone stuff, records generally. We already know he took documents out of the White House that should not have been taken, classified materials. So that gets us back to the repercussions question. And unfortunately, anyone who already thinks that Donald Trump is a no-go, for us, this just underscores that. But the problem is that for Republican primary voters, they are getting so incredibly radicalized and the pool is shrinking and they're becoming more and more radicalized. And I talked to an operative the other day and and I was saying to him like, oh, you know, you and I had dinner uh, in the fall of 2019 when I was undertaking the kamikaze Joe Walsh campaign. <laughs> and he responded to me and he said, oh, that's right. We That's the last time I saw you in person. And he said, it's it's a it's a different world in so many ways, but there are still too many autocrats. And that's true, but it is even the the what the audience of hardcore Trump supporters look like now in 2022 is even worse than they looked like in 2019 and 2020 and 2021. And and there's so much paranoia. That's what has really happened. I'll give you an example of this. I talked to a campaign consultant this week who is monitoring some battleground states. And and in one of these states, actually in my home state of Arizona, uh, candidates can get on the ballot through a, an e-qual system where you know they just have to send supporters to a website and they fill in their information. And it spits out like, okay, great. You, you qualify, you're a qualified signer. It's super great for the candidates because if anyone who's ever worked on a campaign, 
getting signatures is a huge nightmare. You don't know, like, what if one circulator has that person somewhere else? You have to get way over the number that's required. Super expensive. People, many states are very prescriptive. You write out the lines, the signature is invalidated in a redistricting year. People don't really know what district they're in. It's just a huge hassle. So you'd think everyone would be like, this online system is great. The Secretary of State is, is validating this for us. In Arizona, in this system, a whole bunch of Republican candidates have decided not to use this system because it requires their signers to give their driver's license number to the secretary of state to validate them. And they think that's going to be used against them. That is a level of paranoia. It's like the secretary of state has your driver's license number. (laughs) They're like part of the, you know, cabal that that issued (laughs) it to you. Called the government. They already know. (laughs) But to me, I mean, that may seem not directly connected, but it is is a level of paranoia that the Trump cult has now um, imbued in their general public, in their population of supporters, that now something like learning that there are seven hours missing, they are not going to give a damn about that. Okay, I have I have one other question for you, and then I have a zoom out question for you, Mark. Um, uh, so, you know, since January sixth, because this opens up a much bigger question about really executive power, right? And the and as Lawfare put it in the recent headline, what happened to post Trump reform, right? Um, so since January sixth, uh, and since Trump has left office, we've talked a lot about that reform, reforming our democracy, but there hasn't been a large scale conversation about how we should think about and possibly reform presidential powers. And uh, and you know we we have this quote from Donald Trump in twenty nineteen uh, quote I have an article two where I have the right to do whatever I want as president end quote that was that was at a Turning Point USA event in twenty nineteen and in the twenty twenty campaign Biden said he'd support some executive branch reforms. Uh, He said Americans must strengthen our laws to ensure that no future president can ever again use the office for personal gain. And then in 2021, Democrats in control of both chambers, uh, lots of hope, lots of ideas about closing these loopholes of executive power that Trump exploited. Uh, The the POTA, the uh, Protect Our Democracy Act, right? That was one of the things, but it was characteristically... uh, of democratic legislation, massive and bloated and went way too far and so stalled and went nowhere. And there's now, from the Biden administration itself, little to no or narrow support for curtailing executive power. And so I just wonder what you think about our hopes for this ever happening now that Democrats are in control of everything and they have little incentive to patch the holes that Trump, you know, Exploited. Yeah, this is why we can't have nice things. And this happens federally. It happens locally. You see a massive contrast between the kinds of reforms that people campaign on and the kinds of reforms they're willing to put energy behind when they're in office. And the reason is that when your opponent is in office, it is easy to ring the bell for transparency and accountability. And when you're in office, suddenly that does not seem so great. And I am not remotely, for people listening, suggesting that Joe Biden is anything remotely like Donald Trump or has any, you know, is is corrupt or anything like that. But you see that this is just a tale as old as time. This is why we generally don't see ethics reform. It's why we have a broken campaign finance system because candidates are rarely willing, elected officials are rarely willing to put the burden on 
themselves. Like who's coming to your office to lobby you? Uh, who's Whom are you taking meetings with, right? So while we do have strong public records laws, there are so many things in terms of executive power. Uh, you know, we see this in states as well, where we're just never going to get meaningful reform in part because we don't have like federal ballot initiatives, right? That's yeah. You see these changes happen in states that are often like progressive era states, that is states whose constitutions were written in the progressive mm -hmm. era, the first one. <laughs> the first progressive era. <laughs> Where there are very, very strong um, constitutional protections, allowances for voters to have a say. But I mean, I guess we could have an Article 5 convention, but that would let's open up. Let's put a pin in that. Let's put a pin in that. <laughs> so Mark, switching gears just a little bit, um, and zooming out here, right? To put this in, okay, why does it why does it matter that we actually get our house in order, right? Why does it matter that we that we patch the holes that Trump exploited? Why does it matter that we uphold the, you know, the the that we codify the norms that we thought were sort of baked into law, but sort of took for granted? When you have a form of government, for example, that's designed to transfer power from one administration to another, uh, peacefully, right? Where the loser accepts losing. That's that's part of the contract. How important is it to know when the former leader spoke with other leaders. And in this case, we're talking about, you know, Trump's missing seven hours and something minutes. But what about key figures in foreign affairs? Is it, is, what will it mean if future administrations aren't confident that they have the full picture of what went on before? So, you know, once again, you know, the world is watching us and, and the United States is not just any old country. You know, we stand for something. Um, you know, I, I always tell a story when I was in the Middle East one time in a, in a country that was, uh, you know, certainly we didn't have very good relations with, but it was an autocratic country. And I was walking to the embassy one day and I looked up the American flag, you know, the silhouette. And it was motivating to me, not only because there was, you know, there was 30 American officials there um, along with our local staff, you know, in a really tough environment. But I also thought of the people of that country because they looked at the flag and it actually stood for something. Um, it stood, you know, not only for you know, ec economic freedoms, because people do want to come to the United States um, uh, uh, to escape, you know, whatever situation they're in, but also the, the idea of, of, of political freedoms and a political system that is based on the rule of law. So it really does matter when our house is not in order. And I, you know, I think back to, you know, my time um, uh, as a U.S. official overseas, and it was not, you know, I, I was back at our headquarters. I was actually, I was retired, but, um, but you know, for, for the Trump administration, for the first two years, when I was a senior official at CIA, I was, I was based uh, in, uh, at, you know, in Northern Virginia at Langley. But can you imagine what diplomatic receptions were like when, when you know, after some kind of outrageous move or statement by Trump, um, or even how about on January 7th, when you, if you go to a reception and, and people are looking at you now, you know, you're going to get some, some funny looks. Some of them are going to be out of sympathy because they realize, because they, because, you know, a lot of other, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, foreign officials, obviously countries, you know, do look to the United States um, and, and are inspired. But then you're going to get a lot of kind of raised eyebrows, you know, and, I, and I'm certainly, you know, certainly from our European partners um, who have been kind of, you know, the, the U.S. for a long time has been lecturing a lot of uh, countries around the world um, about the needs for, you know, freedom and democracy. And now it looks like our house is not in order. And, uh, you know, that, and that was that was really hard. One of my one of my friends told me that during the age of covid, um, which was awful, but it really shut down kind of that overseas community, the receptions, they were actually glad because they, they, you know, they didn't want to go to reception and have, you know, the, the autocratic countries ambassadors going up to them and saying, Hey, you know, we're same, same now. Um, that was a really a, a great fear. So, you know, it goes back to the, just the fundamentals on getting our house in order are really important 
um, for how we're seen overseas. It's uh, it's it's you know it's it's what we did as as U.S. officials, um, and uh, and it it really was damaged. But it, it matters now. So yeah. it's not just because the Trump administration's over. The Biden administration's in power. I think the, a lot of the world did breathe a sigh of relief, um, but it still is looking back. And the idea of not holding people accountable, and accountability is a really big deal, um, but that's going to be very damaging, uh, you know, down the line if we don't if we don't move forward on that. It's a really good segue to our next segment, which which we'll get to in in just a minute. But I I wonder what you think about the idea then that democracies need each other in order to survive, and actually other democracies need. America to survive, uh, but we need other democracies to survive just as much. And and I, especially given this moment that we're in, we're going to talk about Ukraine in a minute. But sure. but can you can you talk about that a little bit? The you know why does it matter if the autocrats are sort of poking fun at us, or why does it matter if uh, if you know if American leadership isn't what we say it is? Um, what happens if our norms start to collapse? If you know if there's another January sixth or worse, right? What 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 are the consequences of that? Other than okay, the United States has egg on its face. Well, look in in international relations, there's kind of a general rule that that democracies generally do not go to war with each other. Um, if you look back at conflicts over time, that is that is you know in essence um, has been has been proven true. So it does matter, um, uh, you know. And and I think that that when we have you know uh, it, look look what's happening right now obviously with it, it, it's the great con, you know conflict of good versus evil and david versus goliath but essentially it's a an a an autocracy uh, uh, in the form of uh, you know russia led by vladimir putin um, who has invaded a, a you know a fledgling democracy um, which is complicated and messy but ukraine was really going in the right direction so so you know, uh, uh, you know, standing for something which is de- democratic norms and principles um, really does matter. Let me let me just give you a scenario as I think about um, you know what it's like to be a U.S. official overseas as we see things happen in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, if if I was at a U.S. embassy and and was serving in a country where there was political turmoil, when there was a, a transfer of power that was in question, um, whether you whether where you saw which is in effect was a coup, an insurrection. Um, and members of of one political party, you know, acting, you know, in an abhorrent manner. This is what would happen. We'd have a country team meeting. The ambassador would have received guidance from the State Department. Every section chief, and you know, I would have been from the obviously the intelligence community. We would go to our our the host country partners in a coordinated fashion and demarch them for what they were doing um, because it was against kind of norms and values of the United States. This is exactly what happened in our country. And, you know, I, I remember writing a couple pieces in, in various, uh, in, in the media of what it was like as a foreign, or what it would be like as a foreign intelligence chief in Washington, watching what has happened in the United States, particularly January 6th, watching in some horror, but ultimately, you know, with, with discussions probably going around in foreign capitals of, of, of you know, our friends actually demarching us uh, as, as our entire kind of political system was, was at risk. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that certainly January 6th was an attempted coup and insurrection. Um, I think it was really, if you, if you take a look deeply now um, into kind of the machinations and what was going, now, going on, I think we're, we're a little bit closer to kind of Armageddon than, yeah, than a lot certainly. of people believe. You know, my, I, have, you know I, I live in Washington, so half of my friends are Republicans. And a lot of them dismiss January 6th as just kind of an unfortunate day. I think we're a lot closer to kind of a, a really cataclysmic event um, in American politics. And, and, and the world was watching. Can you imagine the cable traffic from, our, from foreign embassies in Washington? Um, you know, I, I was, I, you know, what we would do is we would send our officers, this is what, as a, from a, as a CIA chief, 
I would, we would send officers, go on the streets, see what's happening with the protests. I'm sure there were foreign intelligence officers watching January 6th at the Capitol in, it's stunned and running back and writing situation reports for their capitals saying, you know, and they would say it in much more kind of formal language, but, you know, they're, they're storming the Capitol right now to try to overturn an election. I mean, this is something that I, I would have seen and experienced if I was a U.S. official in the third world. And that's what we, in essence, had turned into. Okay, let's turn to Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East. Um, Putin's war in Ukraine is now stretched on for over a month. Uh, President Joe Biden was in Europe last week to meet with Europeans uh, in an attempt to bolster unity. On Saturday, the president spoke outside the Royal Castle in Warsaw and ad-libbed a line that was the now second most talked about event of the weekend. We're not going to talk about the slap heard around the world, but anyway, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, is what he said. The White House downplayed the line after the speech. A White House official told reporters that Biden's point was, uh, you know, quote, Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region, end quote, and said that Biden was not calling for regime change. But what he said is essentially calling for regime change. That's that's um, that's weak spin, in my opinion. Uh, and our own Mike Madrid made the point on Twitter, uh, quote, if Republicans press Biden on regime change and they should, we will have two choices, walk it back or double down. Walking it back undermines the leadership they're trying to convey by going to Europe in the first place. Um, and Mark, perhaps you can tell us about the significance of Warsaw, why, why he was there in the first place. And then he says doubling down is an escalation. So based on what we know about how Putin sees NATO, uh, how should we be thinking about um, how he'd interpret Biden's comments? And, you know, there's been lots of analysis among the chattering class since this has happened. We're recording on Thursday. Listeners will hear this on Friday. So give us the most important pieces of this, uh, the, the most important wisdom, insight from everything that you've you know, how you've been thinking about this. Sure. And as a full-fledged member of the foreign policy blob uh, <laughs> uh, in Washington um, with, the, with the headquarters, as, or as John Seifer and I say, the headquarters at the Vienna Inn, a little dive bar in Northern Virginia. Um, uh, look, I, I think, and you know, I, I, I disagree with some of the analysis on this. I don't think it was a big deal. Um, I, I really don't um, for a couple of reasons, because Vladimir Putin, deep in his soul, believes that we want regime change. It doesn't matter. So you know, Biden's quote gaffe. And, and I think it was obviously, yeah, I'd lived it. Um, there's some, you know, some media speculation that this was planned. Oh, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think Putin cares because this is what he fundamentally thinks and believes. And so I don't think it will change his decision-making. And that's the only thing that really matters. Putin's decision-making. His decision-making. And, you know, will, will a, you know, uh, 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 probably a poorly, you know, worded um, ad lib at the end of a really good speech, you know, will that change his calculation and what he's going to do in Ukraine? I don't think so at all. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't as bothered by it. And there's yeah. another point too, um, or, or a couple of them. One is within Europe, you know, you saw old Europe, you saw kind of you know, the French Macron, the French can't help themselves. Um, you know, every opportunity he gets uh, to, to kind of zing uh, Biden, Macron will do so. Um, incidentally, he fired his they fired their military intelligence chief today. The French, uh, the French military intelligence chief was fired for failing to predict the, the, the invasion so that we can get pack, unpack that later. But ultimately, you know, old Europe was upset by this because, you know, they, it's much more, you know, as you said, uh, uh, cautious. The, the frontline states of the Baltics, they totally agree with this. Um, they are at, at risk and, and the Ukrainians could care less either. And, I, you know, I talked to a friend of mine. I said, what do you think a Ukrainian SOF, Special Operations Force operator, 
um, or someone from 10th Group Special Forces or a CIA paramilitary officer who are involved in this, you know, our side, you know, remotely, um, but the, the Ukrainian staff on the ground, do you think they even care what Biden, and they said, absolutely not, because the one thing that has to continue, and I don't think this, that comment makes it, uh, it, it has any effect on it, is that the weapons flow has to go forward. The only thing that matters in my calculation, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, overseeing kind of, you know, uh, Europe and Eurasia operations for several years um, is, and this is going to sound a little gruesome, is that, you know, how many body bags, uh, you know, return uh, uh, to Russia. And so as long as the weapons flow keeps going and this, you know, Biden's comment won't have any effect of that on that, that that's what really matters. So I think it was a little, um, you know, o- overblown. I, I, I might understand other people's points on this, that a lot of time, a lot of times those, you know, uh, you know, you know, particularly, you know, who are, you know, uh, you know, from the from the Democratic side are going to excuse Biden for making these mistakes. But I just don't think it's that significant because the, what matters is, does this change Putin's decision making? And I don't think it does. OK, so what matters is what matters to to the outcome of the war to Ukraine, right, is does it does it change Putin's decision making? But certainly there are political implications domestically to how that comment is interpreted and what the White House says about it in. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I actually think it was a fine comment. And, oh, and I was like, yeah, I, yeah duh, obviously. Yeah, he's a dictator. Yeah. He's violent. Appeasement has not worked with him, he being Vladimir Putin. Uh, and also saying, for God's sakes, we need regime change. It does not mean you're saying, and we're going to roll in with tanks into, you know, we're not, this is not like we're about to have a, you know, Saddam Hussein statue moment, right? It means like this eyes on the prize, this is the core of the problem. I think if anything, and Mark knows infinitely more about this than I do, but I think that if anything, it probably was inspiring to the Ukrainian people. Like the American president has our back and and is saying this is not okay. Yeah, yeah. Let me me see, here's where it really does matter. Okay. Um, uh, Because, you know, there is there is the near term goal, which is of course to evict Russia from Ukraine. Yeah. Um, But make no mistake, I mean, Putin, well, he was before, but, you know, is a war criminal. Yeah. Um, they have they have uh, uh, committed atrocious war crimes inside Ukraine, and we can have a long discussion on how they did the same with the Russians killing over 4,000 Syrians, Russian Air Force in Aleppo, you know, what the Russians Chechnya. did in, in, in Chechnya, um, you know. Uh, uh, but ultimately, what are we going to do after Russia does withdraw? And so that comment, you know, certainly, uh, you know, ha- you know, I'm sure this is what Biden was thinking, because one of the one of the things that I worry about is as we watch Bashar al-Assad in Syria completely, you know, you know, be, you know, as of last week, I believe, um, being accepted, welcome back into the into the Middle East. You know, he was hosted in the UAE. Um, he is being reintegrated into at least the Middle Eastern, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, community. So I think there's a danger because because Germany still has energy in, you know, uh, uh, dependence on Russia. Um, UK, you know, London is still a laundromat for Russian money. So there's going to be a tendency, particularly in old Europe, to try to, uh, I worry that to try to rehabilitate Putin. When, once he does leave um, Ukraine, what are we going to do about him? And the fact of the matter is that he is a war criminal and he's going to have to be held to account. And so I think Biden's comment, you know, has that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, again, I wasn't particularly okay. concerned about it. And, and, and you know, well, here's the thing, you know, obviously the Russians uh, and, and Russian propaganda and media picked up on this only after it was, made, it was made a big deal in the United States. Their first reaction to this was muted because that's what they think anyhow. Right. Yeah. And in terms of how Putin perceives the U.S. and other countries' involvement in Ukraine, one of the weird things that we've learned this week that are it's been confirmed is that 
Vladimir Putin is receiving an incredibly massaged, um, edited version mm-hmm. of what's happening in Ukraine. Like, of, of course, Putin knows that Biden said this. But one of the things that's been so interesting that's come out this week from American intelligence is that Vladimir Putin has continually been given incorrect information by his closest advisors and and military generals about the conditions on the ground in Ukraine to basically tell him what he wants to hear about how it's going, about what the Ukrainians' capacity to fight back is, about what kind of aid they have and how they're supplied. And it's because those advisors care more about quelling the insanity of their enablers, of Vladimir Putin, and they care zero about, as you say, all the body bags returning to Russia or perhaps let to rot, left to rot in a ditch in Ukraine. And so, I mean, what I think we've we've been it's confirmed for us this week that the guy is an an evil menace who's being enabled by a whole apparatus. Yeah. And so, so I I don't see that as you're saying this in a different way, but I don't see that this new one liner from Biden <laughs> is going to be particularly meaningful yeah. for his Russian counterpart. Which also, by the way, the, the way the line struck me, by the way, was the same way that, you know, this is this is Uncle Joe. This is what he does. We he do kinda need ju- regime change. He, he kind of <laughs> just says the obvious thing. He gets right. out ahead of everybody else before everybody wants him to say it. Uh, see also gay marriage uh, uh-huh. from the Barack Obama era uh-huh. before Obama was like ready to say, you know what I mean? He went out and outed the president on his position on marriage equality. And this is what he does. Right. But- he received a ton of praise for that because everybody was already there. And Biden was just like, well, duh, obviously this is, he just, you know, it, anyway. So on Tuesday, the Daily Beast reporter, Julia Davis, reported that uh, Russian state TV host Evgeny Popov told viewers that it was time for the Russian people to call on Americans to change, quote, the regime in the U.S. and, quote, to again help our partner Trump to become president, end quote. Uh, so according to Davis, Popov, uh, later attempted to clean up what he said saying, like, I hope we helped him in the past End quote. So just digging the hole a little bit deeper. How are you both thinking about how this speaks to Russia's continued preference to Donald Trump? And does this matter politically, domestically at all? I'd look, I think we're smarter now. I mean, you know, the, you know, Russians ran a brilliant covert operation, active measures campaign in the 2016 election. Um, and America was was blind to it, and it's really unfortunate because I think it you know it did have a a, a, a pretty tremendous effect. But you know when when you have Russian politicians saying you know the outrageous things like this yeah. that that you know kind of everyone rolls their eyes and and, and makes people smile, um, or or kind of uh, 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 you know react in, in in some horror. Um, what when the Russians say this, it actually this actually embarrasses Trump even more. Um, because it just it goes to you know it goes right back again to um, you know his affinity for for Vladimir Putin and all the kind of the horrible yeah. things he said over the years and then and then the amazing thing is Trump then you know exacerbated things I think it was before this um, uh, uh, before the Russians uh, a comment but you know when he said um, I believe it was yesterday or or even the day before you know asking Putin to kind of release the Hunter Biden oh yeah you know uh, you know emails laptop information just yeah. ludicrous stuff and so. Yeah. I think it gets a lot of press and and play. Certainly, there's weird fringe elements of of kind of the MAGA base that that still dig this stuff. But I don't think this plays with the majority of, of Republican voters. And I think it just makes um, yeah. 
you know, uh, oh, Trump right. look, Trump look absolutely ridiculous. I, I hope so. But let me go, you know, kind of back to, uh, uh, but this goes to over the kind of the overall information operations yeah. game. Um, and, and, you know, we alluded, Lucy alluded to, to it before the authorized disclosures of, of, you know, us intelligence, uh, which is information operations, yeah. um, has been brilliant. And so yesterday when you had this coordinated campaign of secretary Blinken, of Admiral Kirby, and even the UK signals intelligence chief speaking in Australia, all talking about, you know, uh, how, um, you know, Vladimir Putin is not uh, obtaining this information. This is troll. This is brilliant trolling. And it's done for, I think, two reasons. One is to get into Putin's head that, that the U.S. has intelligence um, uh, on this. And, and it's to sow dissension within really the security elite, which is really the foundation of, of his regime. But but here's a here's a kind of a different spin on this, too. It's also offering this kind of this the dreaded word that I that I hate is an off ramp. I don't like the, I haven't liked the word off ramp because I think that's just generally how we would appease a dictator. Yeah, it does but, sound like appeasement. But in this case, it, we are, we are offering him something. He has the ability now to say, and I don't think it's going to work, but I, 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 I you know, with, with these information operations, there's a goal in mind in these things. This, this, this coordinated campaign is not just done throwing it out there in the wind. I think it was also giving him the ability to say to the Russian people, look, I have been deceived by my military chiefs. And we know he already is. Uh, there's some dissension within the FSB. He has some senior FSB officers who've been who've been arrested. Um, he's he's upset with the uh, you know the Russian defense minister uh, Shoigu. So ultimately, this would give him if he chose to take it an off ramp, um, in, in which to say, well, I've been deceived. Now I don't think you know. I, I, so I think that was the goal of some of these active uh, uh, of, of these of these uh, uh, intelligence. It's not a leak. It's a it's an authorized disclosure. Um, uh, I don't know if he's going to take it, but it certainly would give him. Um, the ability to use that. So that's, you know, that's something that I think that, that, that and that's how we are actually finally winning. But the last point on this, you know, as I, um, I've, I've been, you know, very fortunate to join the Atlanta Council as a, as a senior fellow on hybrid warfare. Um, and this goes to how we, for a long time, were never able to hit back. So the Russians launched their, their disinformation campaigns, even, even, you know, with, 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 you know, with statements saying that, you know, our friend Trump is in, in office, that's designed to sow dissension. What, what we have been able to do is, is what we call timely attribution, is to hit back on this. Um, so I think that we've gotten so much better, uh, uh, you know, since 2016. And you can see um, that, you know, we have upped our game and, and we are reacting in, you know, even in, in real time to Russian disinformation or even preempting it with, with just this, yeah. you know, incredible trolling. I mean, if yeah. you, Vladimir Putin is not happy today. Um, with what with all these authorized uh, uh, disclosures yesterday, and that's a really good thing. So timely attribution by that you mean uh, they they run an information operation, and then we say, nope, that's the Russians, right? Yep. Im immediately, yep. right? They, they they run a disinformation They're disinformation, operation. Yes, yeah. right? So, but Lucy, the problem is it doesn't matter, right? But the problem is it doesn't it doesn't cut through and change the conversation among the people who are still supporting Russia right now, right? They're still cheering them on. No, but it but this. This kind of context, I think, does help perpetuate the binary between Trump and Biden that we actually really want. I mean, okay. if, if anything, the biggest challenge that Democrats and Biden face from now through the midterms ahead of 2024 is they have thus far had trouble creating the same binary, right? Like the January 6th committee stuff, super important work, not really top of mind for a lot of people, right? Now you have some of these, some Republicans scrambling to try to kind of walk back some of their previous talking points on Russia. And you have Trump doubling down on his insanity. And so this is a thing people don't like to hear. I think in 2024, looking ahead, I would love to see 
Trump at the top of the ticket because I think he is much more beatable than other Republicans who are much more sophisticated and savvy in how they talk about this. People like Josh Hawley, people like Ted Cruz, but who have shown themselves in recent years to have all the same authoritarian fascist bones in their body as Donald Trump. So I think that this has all been very good. I think that setting up this renewing, this binary between Trump and Biden, the Republicans and the Democrats on something like Russia, I think is good. I think it's good news. And I, and I would also add and throw in NATO yeah. and the alliance and, you know, and Trump's absolute hostility, um, yeah. which we saw as, as we served in the U.S. government towards NATO. Um, Biden is a Atlanticist. I mean, this is this is something yeah. he, he spent decades, you know, fostering this alliance. That's a really good, you know, uh, you know, thing to put forward and, and and run on because if anything, you know, has come come, uh, uh, you know, through this the Ukraine Russia Ukraine conflict, and of course we want to save as many Ukrainians as we can. And what's happened to them is awful, but but the the kind of the rejuvenation of NATO and our partners um, across the pond has been extraordinary, and I think Biden deserves a huge yeah. amount of credit for this. Yeah. There is no way. We are in this position today, right now. If Trump were in office, it, I think it would, you know, Ukraine would be in Russia hands right now. Yeah. A smile formed across Ron's face as I was answering, and yeah. I want to know. I want to know why. <laughs> I, the smile was really just uh, uh, sympathy because R.I.P. Your Twitter mentions when people hear you say that Trump should be at the top of the ticket in twenty twenty four. So Ron's <laughs> gonna. Ron's gonna. <laughs> yep, I think your phone is exploding. Ron just All unfollowed ready. me on Twitter. Can't be associated with that. I want to pull on one other thread here in, while we're on this topic. Um, last week, the New York Times reported uh, that the Israeli government rejected requests from Ukraine and Estonia to purchase and use Pegasus, the spyware tool, uh, Mark, which you and I have talked about. The last time you were on the roundup, we talked about it vis-a-vis -vis, um, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and, uh, and, the, and the fantastic documentary uh, that we were talking about called The Dissident on Amazon. And I would I commend everybody to go watch that because it was fantastic. Um, anyway, the spyware tool used, um, uh, they, they wanted to purchase it to hack Russian mobile phone numbers due to fears that it would damage Israel's relationship with the Kremlin. Now, okay, that means it doesn't require, by the way, the the this tool, it means it doesn't require uh, a target to click on a phishing link to give Pegasus access to everything, photos, contacts, messages, video recordings, everything. So it's essentially someone, someone just immediately has access to your phone and you did nothing to allow them to exploit that. It's literally just invisible to you. So Ukraine's attempts to procure Pegasus go back to Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. Um, but Israel has had a near total embargo on selling weapons to Ukraine. And that's according to the New York Times. Now, Mark, I want to know how we should be thinking about Israel's relationship with Russia. Um, and also you know, the influence that Russia has over the Middle East more broadly, because this is, this, you are, we should say for our listeners, again, a Middle East expert uh, of experts. Um, and so I, I, it's complicated. It's really complicated, this relationship. And, you know, Pegasus is something I've been wanting to discuss on the show for some time in depth. We can't get to that here, but I wonder what you make of this, the, the, the tangle of relationships over this technology. Well, so, so, you know, the the Israeli position, um, and frankly, as well as as the UAE and the Saudi position on the Russia Ukraine crisis, has been driving me crazy. Um, again, as a as a former Middle East hand who worked, you know, extensively with with every one of those countries, but really particularly with with Israel. Um, uh, you know, Israel obviously has a, a a moral standing and a legitimacy based on you know historic 
uh, conditions. That's really important. This is a conflict right now with Ukraine and Russia, which there is a lot of moral clarity. This is David versus Goliath, good versus evil. Israel should, uh, based on its history, be on the right side here, and they're not. And it's it's, it's actually pained a lot of us um, who spent a lot of time working with the Israeli government. Um, you know, their excuses for this, um, uh, uh, you know, or, or, or their reasons for this, you know, there is some legitimacy there. I mean, they need to work with Russia and the Russian Air Force um, as Israel continues to hit targets in Syria. And these are Iranian and, and Hezbollah, you know, weapons depots. But nonetheless, you know, this is a time where the United States has asked Israel to take a certain stand and they mm-hmm. have kind of really struggled to do so. Now, I think they've gotten to a better place. There is really interesting dynamics within Israel between the prime minister's office and the foreign minister's office on this. I think the foreign minister is much more um, willing to, uh, or or, or, or understanding the U.S. position. Um, But but this goes back to, you know, a lot of times Israel, again, you know, and and, and for all of, of, you know, how we kind of inherently feel about about Israel, sometimes they do things that, that, you know, are, are not in uh, uh, you know, or not along kind of those kind of norms of of promoting freedom and democracy that that we like. You know, I mean, historically they had relations. I mean, going back with the apartheid regime in South Africa, um, and so I think you know uh, Israel is uh, is uh, uh, and and then of course you have to kind of throw in the whole Iran nuclear. I mean, you, when you say right. it's complicated, the Iran nuclear talks oh God, and the Israelis yeah. in a, in, a, in a state of um, extreme unease that yeah. the United States is going to cut a deal with the Iranians and also, for example, you know, lift sanctions on the IRGC. Um, so Israel's in a tough spot in this, but I think they've, you know, they've, they're missing an opportunity to really ally themselves with the United States in a, in a particular fashion. And it's, I think it's been, it's pretty, pretty troubling. When I first was reading about this this week, I, I, at first glance assumed maybe this was like a relic of the, the Bibi era in Israel. And it's not, it's as recently as last August when Ukraine made these requests, when Russian troops were massing at the border of Ukraine and you mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE, F- people should know those are two customers of Pegasus. Those are countries that Israel has been willing to sell Pegasus to. Also, uh, you know, and you could say, okay, well, those are huge countries that are important because of oil and all the other things and Middle Eastern balance. Well, let me tell you another country they've been willing to sell to. They've also sold to Viktor Orban's Hungary, right? And so there are, that's, is Hungary more important than Ukraine? What's the difference between Ukraine and Hungary, right? It's the it's Russia's relationship to Ukraine versus Russia's relationship to Hungary. So uh it 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 is it is very troubling. And and I think that the it's really underscored this week by Zelensky's speech to the Israeli parliament. I mean, he if if you thought that his speech to Americans, addressing Americans saying a couple of weeks back, you know, like Martin Luther King had a dream. I have a need. You have not seen anything yet because in his speech this week to the Israeli parliament, he said basically, and again, reminding everyone that Zelensky himself is Jewish. He basically compared their lack of intervention to uh, enabling the Holocaust, right? That, that to Ukrainians, this is their Holocaust. And um, that, that may bother some Israelis, but it definitely is a, is a line that is sticky. So. And, and by the way, you know, I, I, you know, every day I read Haaretz, which is a great publication and, you know, and there is, there is definitely, you know, more of a feeling in, in Israel that, Hey, we, we might've kind of 
fumbled on this one. Mm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this moves forward. Yeah. Um, you know, it, and, and it, particularly when you're talking about you know uh, uh, you know uh, weapon sales yeah. or something or, or a sale of something such as yeah. such as Pegasus. Now Pegasus is a little complicated because the U.S. government has really hammered the Israelis for selling this to anybody. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, complicated yeah. <laughs> doesn't even begin to. And um, you know, we should bookmark this for a future conversation right. because I, there's so many layers to this onion. Uh, and, and the times recently did a really wonderful Sunday read on this. Um, and so I would, I would recommend that maybe we can put a, a link here in the show notes, but we're going to come back to Pegasus. You should come back and talk about actually both of you. Should, we, there are privacy implications all over the place. By the way, the FBI has, uh, Pegasus, uh, they claim that it is for R and D purposes only. Um, so take that for whatever you think it's worth. On Wednesday, The Atlantic published a piece by Robinson Meyer about how the philosophy behind the progressive climate proposals is appearing more and more out of date because these plans were rooted in the pre-pandemic economy. Uh, the major climate proposals like the Green New Deal and the Biden Climate Plan assumed that the cost of raw materials and hiring workers would remain relatively low, uh, which is obviously not the case when we're seeing this level of inflation. And many also assumed that the world had excess oil and that gas prices would remain low due to America's fracking boom. Many of the plans also presumed that there weren't many pressing energy security concerns. And we now know that is not the case. Biden's climate plan showed worry uh, about China's prominence in renewable energy manufacturing. And Meyer notes in the last few years, and especially within the last month, that basic assumptions about the economy in these plans is no longer valid. Unemployment is not the same problem it was in the early 2010s, but inflation and supply chain issues would make it difficult and costly to restructure the energy system. Petroleum costs hit their highest inflation-adjusted level since 2014 last month. We've been talking about the cost of oil recently. The war in Ukraine has created an incredibly urgent energy security issue. Uh, obviously, Russia is a major oil producer, one that Europe is dependent on. quarter of Russian oil that is imported by Europe flows in pipelines that run through Ukraine. Um, and, you know, we should obviously note that highly flammable pipelines don't always fare well in violently military <laughs> campaigns, right? And last week, Europe pledged to import 50 billion cubic meters of liquid natural gas from the U.S. annually through 2030. That's up from the 17 billion it currently imports. Now, that increase in importing gas will make natural gas prices rise everywhere and push other countries to buy coal. So without any specific questions, I wonder what you both made of the piece first, and then we will explore your thoughts. Lucy? Yeah, well, I mean, the piece really highlighted a bit of a domino effect yeah. that we see in this area. And I think that the the links between what's happening with Russia, what's happening with inflation, the the idea that the Green New Deal, in essence, you know, a program that basically was like, oh, we're going to put people to work, right? And they're going to go out and build whatever, insert your inf renewable energy infrastructure of choice du jour, is really interesting. I think that the the human capital piece of the piece was really interesting, the noting that we don't have an employment issue right now. We have 80% of of adults in their prime years are are working. It's, you know, we have actually like a human capital shortage, right? Yeah. There are too many jobs for too few because it's like things are going Can't gangbusters yeah. in, in that way. I thought also it it made me think about how we talk about climate generally. And, uh, you know, Ron, you and I are around the same age when in, in the nineties, when I was a kid and I was the age that 
you know, like a science teacher, a social studies teacher would start ringing the alarm about, at that time, we talked about like the hole in the ozone layer, yeah, that's right. whatever. And I remember watching this horrifying video as an eighth grader that was like, by 2010, yeah. we will all be dead. Yeah. And the we will all, you know, have skin cancer the moment we walk. Outside. I mean, people think I'm, that, that, I'm not exaggerating. This I is totally how it is. Like, and it's because your mom uses hairspray. <laughs> and it turned out not to be true. And part of why it turned out not to be true is that industry and stakeholders have done a good job of changing how we do business and how we organize society. And we talked about this a few weeks ago on the Roundup when we were talking about um, whether or not the the oil price challenge vis-a-vis Russia uh, meant we should go to Venezuela and backfill. And, and I reminded people that actually when you look at where we thought we would be on energy, on renewables, say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and where we actually are, we are doing so much better than we imagined, right? You have half of people are living in uh, either jurisdictions or under utilities where they those utilities have made massive commitments to ramping up renewables. And so what I was left feeling like in this article, which I think is great, uh, is that one of the things that's really missing in the dialogue among climate activists is that it is not hopeful ever. It is always like sky is falling and you need to make big changes and we are screwed. And and there's not, and I think a lot of people feel like, what am I supposed to do individually? Like, okay, I use cloth bags. I like compost or whatever. And I thought Americans actually like being part of for lack of a better term, like war efforts yeah. and helping. And I thought it made me think one real like sort of thing to think about, something that could be a powerful way for the climate activist community to shift how they are talking about this is to talk about how much better we are doing yes. than we thought we would. Because most Americans don't feel day to day like we're living in some kind of dystopia where we can't turn our lights on or take a shower. Most people feel like things are fine. You have like the cranks where like my light bulbs suck, my shower pressure is bad. Most people are like, this is pretty good. I'm my life is better than than ever in, toilets. in many ways. <laughs> right. And so so if you contextualize that for yeah. people and say, actually, we are doing, we thought we were gonna have these we're big problems. Great. We're doing really well because of the steps we took. And there are more steps to take. We're gonna move people, we're gonna shift our auto industry to electric, we're gonna shift our energy portfolio in this way. We're going to get off of fracking and and your life is still going to continue to improve, right? I think that's how you make the American people stakeholders in this. It's not by beating them over the head with like how much they're screwing up, which has has really been the the, the, the modus operandi. And, and it's also not the AOCs of the world basically condescending to people about how they need to get on the Green New Deal. And by the way, in true democratic fashion, also the Green New Deal, if you're for the Green New Deal, you also have to be kind in term, in favor of like all kinds of like language about equity and uh-huh. and like communities of color. And justice, that's all justice, fine. All, that's all, all fine. It in, has yeah. nothing to do with climate. With climate, right? right? So th- I think we could really know, make some changes. We don't often do this, but I'm like snapping. On this. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not a snapping show, but <laughs> well, it is today. It is today. Well said. Uh, I totally agree. 
and I, and I have another question I want to come back to you in a minute, but Mark, uh, I want to know how you're thinking about the security threats in the U.S. Um, that we face with energy producing countries, um, not just security threats, but also the message it sends when we are, when we raised this a couple of weeks ago, I think when we were talking about this, Lucy, but cozying up to Venezuela again, now that we think we need more oil um, and Saudi Arabia not returning our phone calls when we wanted to talk to them about oil. Um, and first of all, what does that make us look like on the world stage when we were talking? We were talking about the importance of the rule of law. When we were ta- when we were talking about, you know, how essential it is to be a democracy now and this struggle against the autocrats all over the globe. How does it hurt our credibility when the United States is trying to uh, uh, deepen our relationships with other very very let's say questionable regimes, just to save the argument? Um, so there yeah. is a really easy answer to this. Okay. It's, it's yes, it is indefensible what we did, and I was I was really disappointed. Now I'm snapping. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I was I was very disappointed in, in the Biden administration with the, the outreach to, to Venezuela. Um, similar talk about you know what an Iran nuclear deal would have in, ter- in terms of uh, access to to you know Iranian uh, energy. I, you know, I don't understand um, why really smart officials in the NSC thought this was a good idea. Um, it's embarrassing to us. Uh, it goes against our principles, and and ultimately, what what I what I wish would have happened, and and President Biden did do this, and I understand politically high gas prices are tough. Um, it's a lot tougher if you're if you're dying in Ukraine. So it's okay to ask the American people to sacrifice a little bit. And I know gas prices were high, um, but the idea it seemed like a, a desperate measure. Um, you know, reaching out to uh, you know autocratic oil producing countries, which frankly, and look, I'm not an energy expert, but my understanding is it might not even have helped all that much. So it made us look awful on the world stage. Uh, it made us look hypocritical. You know, we're, we are, we're hammering the Germans repeatedly. And, you know, there's some satisfaction in this about their, about their historic energy dependence on Russia. And they've, they have publicly committed to, um, you know, trying to, uh, to do better on that. And I think they understand that, that, you know, what they've, what the Germans have done uh, over the years, um, what Germany has done is is certainly uh, expose them. Yet we turn around and reach out to Venezuela. That makes no sense. I don't understand that. These are smart people at the National Security Council. Um, I, I I just it's so it's it's something that really really troubled me. I don't think it went anywhere. Um, the other thing politically, it it you know this is this is just serving up you know raw meat to, uh, for Republicans to. It's hypocritical. It's right, it's, it's, it's wildly hypocritical. It's on and so, his face hypocritical. Um, yeah. Now. You raise something that is important, though, and that has to do with our relationship to our, uh, you know, to our, you know, Middle Eastern allies. And mm-hmm. so it's clear, and there was a good article in the New York Times, I think, yesterday, that, or maybe it was this morning, that our relationship with the UAE and Saudi Arabia has kind of mm-hmm. gone down the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and well, and if they'd stop killing journalists, then that would be that. That's <laughs> that. But but there is something to be said for um, you know, uh, you know, not necessarily ignoring um, the the uh, you know the Saudis or the Emiratis, but you know, it, and 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 you know, we can multitask, and the Biden administration administration can. So I think that you know the relations, you know, for example, they are most concerned about you know attacks by the Houthis um, against infrastructure targets in both countries. This is the Emiratis and the Saudis, and and the uh, you know and and the U.S. We 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 were in fact slow to respond um, to uh, requests for assistance. So, you know, this is okay to criticize the Biden administration on this because I think they, you know, they put themselves in a bit of a bind. I find it a little annoying, the whining of the Saudis, the Emiratis, but they're not entirely wrong that we should have paid a little bit more attention to them. And, um, because, you know, again, as an old Middle East hand, everything is based on relationships. You know, they got to feel loved. We got to show them some love. And, and even if we have problems, obviously with, uh, uh, with MBS and, uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, in in, uh, in Saudi, but, 
Um, I think we ignored uh, those two countries a little bit, and it and it and it hurt us. But to your original point, my God, what are we doing? I mean, reaching the, out to to autocratic countries that just makes no sense. I mean, to your point, if, it, if this really does come down to relationships, whether it's at right. the state actor level or the or the individual level, the individual level is actually what steers the state actor level. And really, like the fundamental question for any good relationship is, who are you actually? And do you mean what you say? Can I trust you? Do you, are you are you being sincere and genuine or are you being duplicitous? And it just looks duplicitous. So, right. um, Lucy, I want to go back to the uh, the question of uh, the, these policy proposals, right, and how they're going to need how they're going to need to change. Um, and you probably have a better grasp of the numbers. Um, but let's take uh, let's take the argument uh, that she makes in the piece. How do the proposals need to change? Where do we like? And we should also note for our listeners, the United States is basically energy independent. We're a net exporter of oil. We have all the energy we need. We don't. We aren't reliant on foreign oil anymore. We just aren't. Uh, which is why it may. Which is why it's so perplexing that we did the thing with the Saudi Arabia. Right? But, um, but focusing on moving forward. Uh, if imagine a world where the Democrats, the Republic, where the Biden administration says we've done all these wonderful things on climate, we have we have we have exceeded our goals so far. There's more to do. What is the more to do? Where should where how should these proposals be evolving? And uh, where where do you think we need to take them? Well, I think that we need new spokespeople, new sponsors at the top of these bills. Uh, I was. I spent some time t- this week listening to some members of Congress who are Democrats who are in districts where Trump also won, mm. right? So basically someone went to the polls and ticked Donald Trump and then ticked like Andy Kim or like Sidney Axney huh. or like Greg Cartwright, right? And 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 that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a really interesting perspective. I'm not proposing that we go sit endlessly in diners because, you know, I could just stay home and stare at my belly button and I don't think that gets us anywhere. But I do think that watching how members like that thread the needle on messaging is is really interesting. And I think that we should, Democrats should be trying to put forward members like that on these issues. A lot of them come from, I mean, some of the members I just mentioned Sydney, Cindy Axney from Ohio, uh, from Iowa, excuse me, uh, a place where Energy policy is very, very important to farmers and to industry. Cartwright is in Pennsylvania, a state whose economy is being made over because of a a shift in in how we consume energy, right? And so I think Democrats need different spokespeople. I also think, I'm sorry to be mis-federalism over here, but I do think that we really should encourage the states to take this on because the way that we got to a scenario in which you have half of Americans living in jurisdictions, whether via their utility or their state or local government, that have attained a much greater degree of good reliance on renewables and continue to grow that that piece of the portfolio, that happened because of things like uh, you know, like state and local utility commissions, corporation commissions. And there are ways that the federal government can help encourage that. And there are ways for them to encourage state actors to be um, 
to create stickiness to work with each other. So different regions have different needs. Um, there's no reason not to use tools like interstate compacts. We have we use we have partnerships between states and cooperation on all kinds of this stuff already. It's in the area of water and energy more broadly. And so thinking about regional solutions, I think, and thinking about having different spokespeople and thinking about how the federal government could augment and and really like help put on on Superdrive some of the the programs that have already achieved success. Maybe that seems wishy-washy, but no, I think we've got to get I away from Green New Deal stuff, I, I frankly. Think, I think it's right. And I think maybe tell me if you think this is a good example or a good correlate, but we've we've already done this to curb drunk driving, basically. Historically, the federal government has tied funding for roads and infrastructure and bridges to states having a minimum or having a, a blood alcohol content reading for when people get pulled over. Like that, that's been the deal, right? Great point. Yeah. So Great we've, point. we've already done this. Same with, same with programs like um, uh, Medicaid, yeah. right? Same with, I mean, there are a lot of examples of this. We've done that in in areas, I'm getting out of my depth here, but I know we've done that in some programs around oil yeah. already. So there's, there's certainly precedent for this. Yeah. Now that... We are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. It was a big news week. Uh, we have covered as much as we can. Uh, let's talk about what you're watching under the radar um, before we head over to Politicology Plus. What do you got, Mark? So it, let's go back to the Middle East again. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned, uh, obviously, kind of the deterioration of relations with with Saudi Arabia and UAE, and of course, um, some some unease with the Israeli, uh, uh, you know, views and actions towards the conflict. But but we have, what we haven't talked about, and which is still looming, is the JCPOA. Um, negotiations. The, uh, sorry, this is the negotiations over a new um, nuclear deal with this Iran. Is the Iran nuclear deal. It's the Iran nuclear deal. There's obviously talks going on in Vienna. It looked like they were progressing very rapidly. It seems like they've stumbled a bit. But but there's two things. One is you know this uh, this is obviously a, a Biden administration administration priority. Um, it's causing significant unease uh, with our Middle Eastern allies um, who really do fear Iran. But more importantly, and for this show in particular, I think that if we go through with this. It opens up the Biden administration to absolute attacks from the Republicans, uh, you know, and and because this is really controversial, and you know, unfortunately, there's a war going on, you know, in Ukraine, Russia, that's taking a lot of our time. But but this really deserves a great deal of debate in the United States. Um, pulling out of the JCPOA, uh, you know, which which President Trump did, certainly didn't make anybody safer because the Iranian nuclear program um, did progress, but. Uh, it looks like some of the um, modalities of what a new deal would look like, you know, might cause many Americans to question what we are doing here. So there is national security implications. There's, I think there's huge political implications in the United States. And so this is what I'm really focused on in the kind of the, in yeah. the days and weeks ahead. Yeah. Lucy, what do you got? Well, it actually involves an, an old, I wouldn't say friend or ally. <laughs> A consulting firm in our in in our meaning oh, you yeah. and and me yeah. uh, in our former orbit, um, which is that news came out this week that Meta that would be Facebook Instagram that group has been paying a, a Republican firm um, that rose from the ashes of the disaster of Romney 2012 a firm called Targeted Victory uh, that they've been paying this firm to really go create gen genuine um, misinformation about TikTok because of, on behalf of Facebook, because of, I think, obviously concerns by the Meta family that they're losing market share to TikTok. Um, and, and so this was being done 
in the style of of public advocacy. So they were going and creating a mix of things like local op-eds, letter writing campaigns, digital buys, basically um, seeding the ground with the idea that TikTok is is a subject of grave concern, dangerous for children, dangerous for communities, and that something needs to be done with it. The, the end goal, of course, was probably things like states passing reforms to curb TikTok, freaking parents out, maybe something, who knows, but it was nefarious. Um, and well, political operatives resent being told that they should be more like traditional marketers. Yeah. And there's also often a lot of condescension to political operatives that they're behind marketers. Um, and of course, it's much more complicated than that. And they're much more entangled with each other than anyone would believe, I think, or or realize at first glance. But in this case, this is really a company deciding that they are going to basically manipulate political operative. This isn't like Facebook going to, this isn't like traditional capture kind yeah. of stuff or like Facebook going, not like, what Edelman we would want do for changes you. to two thir- section 230 right. or whatever. This is a matter of, of a, a company making a business decision to try to use political tactics to uh, suppress competition. Yeah. Um, it's also funny because this firm targeted victory <laughs> for years was Which we basically, know very well. we know well. Yeah. Um, I was at once at this incredibly awkward event at Google and it turned that they were co-sponsoring and uh, it turned out to be their CEO's birthday. And they brought out, like they had this line of people bring out this cake and like, this is like cult of personality, yeah. weird yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's also funny because they claim to be a tech company and it turns out that they're actually oh. just like no, they're astroturfy letters to the editor. Yeah. But so I had a little schadenfreude with this, but, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, it's a thing to watch out for because we want to feel like we know what's real and what's not. And it's a reminder that you really can't trust it. They succeeded in doing things like placing pieces in the Washington Post. Yeah, totally. So. I mean, I think it's also important to watch because I think we will see more of it. As, yes. as this new sort of, as capitalism is evolving very, very quickly, we're going to see more and more corporations turn to political firms. They've, they've already done, this has already been a a, um, a worn path by corporations, yes. but I think you're going to begin to see them use even uh, more underhanded tactics that, uh, that political marketers use uh, in order to preserve their dominance and squash competition. Yeah. Totally. And just for the record, I know we've talked about this on the roundup before, but there really, as far as I know, is not a lot of evidence that I'm not on TikTok, but that TikTok is really, really a dangerous platform relative to the others. Whereas we know that like Instagram is causing just horrible outcomes for young children, teens, teenage girls, especially. So it's, it's especially icky. Yeah. Uh, Mark, our friend John Seifer told me, don't like delete TikTok, if you have it on your phone, don't download it a long time ago, like a year ago. And I was like, okay, never downloading that again. Just because of the Chinese, I can't the remember. Angle, the, the, the funny English. thing the I missed though, thing. Yeah. but, but oh, yeah. if, you know, I have two kids, yeah. um, both in college, TikTok is a big part of their lives. Yeah. So the idea of my going to them and saying delete don't TikTok delete is, like, is ludicrous. Yeah. So that just, I mean, you know, there, there is wow. a part of this where TikTok is now so ingrained um, in, uh, you know, in, in kind of the youth of, uh, of America. But, but I agree with Lucy. I don't think it has the same kind of dangerous, you know, yeah. kind of or, you yeah. know, danger that, um, that Instagram and others have had yeah. in, in terms of, you know, teen suicide and, and things like that, which is really troubling. That's another conversation we're going to need to dig into. Um, I've got a couple of things. Um, just briefly, uh, Greenpeace, which everyone will be familiar with, has recently partnered with, uh, 
a billionaire named Chris Larson, um, who's a, he's a crypto billionaire, um, to try and convince Bitcoin companies, miners, developers to change Bitcoin's consensus mechanism, which, you know, from proof of work to proof of stake. Now, I'm not going to dive into the, the the details of what those two protocols mean, but um, I uh, I am, you know, virtually hanging out with some, uh, some progressive Bitcoiners because it's a very interesting community that is, that is now growing, springing up to uh, sort of counter the right wing um, sort of embrace of Bitcoin. It, now, look, Bitcoin is a is a is a technology. It's a protocol. It's a uh, it's a it's a it's a, it's an asset. It's a new asset class. It's a lot of things. Um, but pu- the, the the public perception has been that it's be it's starting to become co opted by the either the really crazy vocal libertarians or the really crazy right wing you know freedom convoy people. Uh, but there's also a growing group of of progressives and progressive activists, including climate activists, who are now uh, sort of debunking a lot of the myths around the energy consumption and consequences of the Bitcoin protocol, which everybody thinks Bitcoin is bad for the environment, right? That's what you, well, Greenpeace has now, they're, they're launching this big lobbying campaign to change public opinion around Bitcoin to try and get them to change the protocol. Now, first of all, that's never going to happen. Zero percent chance. The protocol is not changing. And once you understand Bitcoin, you'll understand that that will never happen. Um, but uh, what I thought was very interesting is Greenpeace has used a lot of, they're using the same tactics that climate deniers used uh, to, to try and change the narrative about environmental regulation, you know, years and decades ago. And I just think it's, it, 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 we'll put a link to a couple of articles in the show notes, but it's sort of alarmingly hypocritical that Greenpeace is doing this. And now there, there are, there are, there are longtime Greenpeace supporter environmental activists who are saying, you've lost me, goodbye. Like when you decide to sort of, you know, regain your senses, then I'll come back and support you again. But, um, the, the, the campaign is completely disingenuous and they use a bunch of debunked scientific research, um, uh, debunked as of January to, to launch this campaign. And also there is no public, there is no PR campaign, uh, you could wage to change the Bitcoin protocol because that's not how it works. And so anyway, I think it's, I think it's fascinating to watch, uh, Greenpeace supporters turn on Greenpeace for doing this and, um, more to come on Bitcoin and the environment, but uh, that crypto episode, the, that, the, that crypto series that we keep telling your mom about. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mark, Lucy, we're going to flip over to uh, the Politicology Plus um, episode where we're going to talk about dun, 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 Hunter Biden and everything that we know now to be true that we thought wasn't true. Uh, before we do that, yikes. I know, yikes is right. <laughs> where can we find you on the internet, Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mark. And I'm on Twitter at, at M. Polymer. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. 
Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.